Amen. Take your Bible and turn with me to the book of Matthew. Children, you are dismissed. Pre-K through second grade. Give our kids a hand as they go. Woo! Somebody say, woo! Free it like that. Babies, of course, your children are always welcome to stay with you here in the sanctuary. You know, we're continuing our sermon series that we're doing. It's called A Redneck Christmas. Um, and I've called it that because we are. Amen. And, uh, and also in our family, and we'll, this makes sense in a moment, but we've all kind of got those crazy uncles, Uncle Ed, or, you know, the, I mentioned last week, the grandma who dip, dips red rooster snuff and can whoop everybody on the block. Amen. But this is the second part of our sermon series for Christmas. And Matthew begins the story, and it's really different. All the other Christmas stories, you know, they start with the birth or the announcement or, or a baby in a manger or John the Baptist being born. But here we have Matthew. He starts with a genealogy. And if you're like me, many times you can read that genealogy and kind of go, blah, 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 and home through it. And Matthew begins with Abraham, and he goes all the way to Jesus. And he does that for a couple of reasons. Now, the first reason that he does that is because he has to show that Jesus is indeed uh, descended from King David. Every good Jew would know that the Messiah, that if the Messiah came, that he would be descended from King David. So Matthew's laying that out for the, his Jewish audience right there to begin with. And so he starts with the genealogy. But the thing is, compared to genealogies in Matthew's day, Matthew does not stick with the script. We talked about last week how if you're some famous person and you're getting your history written, your genealogy done, that the person doing it would make sure and skip your crazy uncle and your grandma who could whoop everybody on the block, okay? Just would not list those people in your genealogy. But here, Matthew seems like he's going out of his way to highlight uh, and italicize and underscore and bold and, and just emphasize all kinds of crazy redneck people in the lineage of Jesus. He at least includes two or three women, which nobody did back in that day, include women in the genealogy, but he includes two or three women that aren't even Jewish in other words, Jesus is of mixed racial descent. He's not 100% Jew, right? And so that would have been a big deal back in that day. And a couple of them, uh, these ladies that are mentioned, they did not have very good reputations. And then Matthew even kind of alludes to David and Bathsheba, even though he doesn't say her name. Everybody knows what we're talking about when we say David and Bathsheba, wink, wink. It's as if he went out of his way to emphasize the fact that in Jesus' lineage, there's some really, really interesting, co colorful, rated R, icky, very icky people in his family tree. Now, why would he do that? Take some notes this morning. Write this down. Uh, because sinners are part of the story. And sinners are the whole point of the story to begin with. Sinners are a part of the story from the very beginning. They're also the point of the story from the very beginning. Matthew's about to unfold the story, the teaching, the life, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for his audience. And as a person, now Matthew being a tax collector who everybody hates. I mean, if we had him today, we wouldn't like him very much. And so he's a tax collector. Every, he had a past and a history himself. And he recognizes that, and he wants to help us understand the nature of his 
message because up until this time, up until Jesus came, any, it didn't matter if you were Jewish or some kind of pagan, Canaanite, Hittite, whatever ite, right, that you were, there was really only one way that you could have peace with God or your gods, and that is by you doing something, presenting yourself, and however whatever fashion that that God would accept by your good works, by praying facing a certain direction, by praying in certain temples, by giving certain sacrifices. So you would have to do something. You would have to bring a gift, if you will, to God to have a right relationship with him. My standing with God is basically depends on what you do for that God. And so um, that kind of religion, that kind of thought process really develops a lot of self-righteous people who start to feel like they're good. I'm good, but other people are out of luck. We begin to believe that uh, my personal righteousness is enough to get God's attention. That's how God loves me. That's how I'm right with God, is by my personal holiness and righteousness. Now, the flip side of that is the person that's not self-righteous, that recognizes that they're a sinner and they're not all that great, right? What, what this kind of mindset does, it causes them to drift away from God, to kind of get away from God because they know they have nothing to offer, nothing to bring, nothing to set on the table. They've got things in their past, they're sinners, and the things that they're ashamed of. And they believe because of what I've done, I am forever distanced from God. But Matthew understood that when Jesus came, he changed everything. That when it comes to Jesus Christ, suddenly mankind has access to God, not because of the get what we bring to the table, but because of what Jesus does for us and because of what Jesus did for us. So Matthew goes out of his way to make sure that you know that Jesus was kin with sinners and that Jesus came for sinners. That's who he came for, not for perfect people, as if they exist. But he came for sinners. And, and, and not just that Jesus is related to these sinners. These are sinners that could win awards for sinning. These are people you would not invite to your family reunion. Let me begin. Let's look at it again. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. Let's look at these guys. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Son of Abraham. Well, that sounds good. Abraham begot Isaac, okay, Isaac begot Jacob, and Jacob begot Judah and his brothers. Now listen, if I were to ask you to turn to your neighbor right now and tell them everything you know about this Judah guy, it'd probably be a very short conversation. But if I ask you to turn to your neighbor and tell everything that you know about Judah's famous brother, Joseph... You could probably tell some more, right? You know the story, the coat of many colors, right? He went from being a slave to being a prince over all of Egypt, right? You've heard the story. Most people know something about Joseph, but not very. If you're being honest, you don't really know a lot about Judah. Matter of fact, you probably hear Judah. You just think of Judas and you think Judah betrayed Jesus. That's not what happened. And here we are in the genealogy of Jesus and Joseph, the famous one, the good one, he's not even mentioned, but we have Judah. It's Judah and his brothers. And to be honest, I'm being honest, if you think about the story of Joseph, if you think about uh, what happened in Joseph's life, and if you do know the story of Judah, and you're going to pick one to be uh, the one from whom the Savior of the world, Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God is going to come from, you would never, ever pick Judah. 
You wouldn't. Not in a million years. You would have skipped Judah, just like me, and went straight to Joseph. Everything about Joseph is amazing. Incredible. I mean, an amazing man of character and just dignity. I mean, he's punished. He's treated, uh, treated unjustly. And yet he does nice things for the people that hurt him. He was always faithful. And at the end of the story, he's a picture of a savior. Joseph ends up saving Egypt. He saves the Pharaoh. He saves his whole family. Joseph is a picture of Jesus in the Old Testament as a savior. I mean, if there was ever a boy to pick uh, for, you know, for Jesus to come from, it's Joseph. Because Joseph, man, in a lot of ways, that dude's perfect. Perfect. Any of you ever have, like, a perfect brother or sister? Or, like, your mom or dad thought they were perfect, but you knew better? They were, you know, childs of Satan. Uh, I shared in the first service, my, I got an older brother, Mike. He's a few years older than me. And we went to Southside, and so... Uh, when uh, back then it was seventh, eighth, ninth, junior high, tenth, eleventh, twelfth high school, right? So when I was in ninth grade, that was Mike's senior year of high school, as my kids call him, Uncle Mike. So Uncle Mike. So when I went into the tenth grade, Uncle Mike graduated and he was no longer at school anymore, which was great by me. Okay, but here's the thing. So Uncle Mike evidently had every teacher at the high school completely fooled. They thought walking on water, he did it. Manna from heaven, he must have did that too. They thought he was the best thing since sliced bread. And I can remember my very first day in 10th grade. And I'm sitting there, and uh, the teachers are doing the role. This happened more than once my first day of 10th grade, more than once. I think like three times. But you know how they're doing. They're going down their list, and they're so-and-so, so-and-so. And they're like, Marcus Kelly, here. And then the teacher would look up. Let me do, let me do all you teachers real quick. Okay. The teacher, the teacher would look up all the uh, the teacher would uh, look up and she'd be like, "Oh, are you Mike Kelly's little brother?" And I'd be like, "Yeah, <laughs> yes, I am." And then uh, something like this was said multiple times that first day. Well, if you're anything like your brother, you're gonna have no problems. He's just the best. We love Mike around here. And I was like, well, we're going to let you down. <laughs> and so now you fast forward to maybe my junior year of high school, right? And the teacher's going down the roll, first day in the class. Da-da-da, da-da-da. And then they go, Marcus Kelly. <sighs> sure do miss Mike. <laughs> right? They thought he was perfect, but I knew better. But Joseph is that perfect sibling. And yet God looked past that perfect sibling, Joseph, and he went straight to Judah. Why would he do that? Because that's the point of the gospel. That's what the gospel is all about. That's the whole story. God didn't choose the oldest brother. He definitely didn't choose the best brother. He chose Judah. And the story of Judah, it's going to start for us in Genesis 37, but his story is kind of a footnote leading up to Joseph's story. Really, it's, he's kind of in the background, but the background of the story is this. Just briefly, I'm not going to go through everything. Judah and his brothers are jealous of Joseph because Joseph is clearly the parent's favorite, right? He's the favorite son. He's got the coat of many colors. Number one, write that, yeah, write that down. Judah is insanely jealous. Insanely jealous. I mean, he is not like regular jealous like you are right now of my bald head, okay? Not just kidding. Kidding. He, he's like, he's bald head. It's the only one I got. But listen to me. 
insanely jealous. Let's look at it. Joseph goes out in the fields to find Judah and his brothers. Look at Genesis 37 and verse 23. It says, So it came to pass when Joseph had come to his brothers that they stripped Joseph of his tunic, the tunic of many colors that was on him. Then they took him and cast him into a pit, and the pit was empty, and there was no water in it. And they sat down to eat a meal. I have to stop there and pause on that for just a moment. Isn't that something they sat down to eat? That's something a brother would do, I promise you. Like, oh, oops. He's down there crying, right? Let's just eat. Look at verse 25. It says, Then they lifted their eyes and looked, and there was a company of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing spices, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry them down to Egypt. Okay, so now we're kind of, here's where we're introduced to Judah. Look at verse 26. So Judah said to his brothers, What profit is there if we kill? I mean, if we, what good is it going to do me if we kill them? You know what I'm saying? What profit is there if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Guys, I've been thinking, we just kill him. It's a waste. We can sell him and make some money. Look at verse 27. I mean, I know we all wanted to sell our brother, Uncle Mike. But come on. Verse 27. Come and let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother. And isn't that sweet? He's my brother. He's flesh and blood. I don't want to kill him. I just want to sell him off as a slave to Egypt. And his brothers listen. They're like, yeah, these brothers don't kill him. So they sell Joseph to the Ishmaelites. They chain him up. Off to Egypt he goes. And from Judah's perspective, that's the last time he's ever going to see Joseph. He's never going to hear from Joseph again. He's never going to see Joseph again. Joseph is a part of the past. And what Judah and his brothers do, it's terrible. I mean, it's bad. They take that coat of many colors and they slap some animal blood on it, tear it up good, and they go and show it to mom and dad. And they're like, we're sorry. Joseph must have got eaten up by a critter. And uh, here's his coat, blood all over it, and Joseph is dead. And so the dad is clearly uh, devastated. Joseph's mom is clearly devastated. And they break their parents' heart. I mean, it is terrible what they do. And they choose to live with this secret and lie, and they're going to take it to the grave. And they think about it. For the next 20 years, every time Joseph's birthday rolls around and mom and dad's hearts are breaking, Judah doesn't say anything. He doesn't do anything. For the next 20 years, whenever Joseph has a birthday coming up and mom and dad's heart's breaking all over again, Judah don't say anything, and he doesn't do anything. He just lets it ride. And he knows in his heart that ultimately he is responsible. One thing I know from reading scripture is Judah wasn't the oldest. He wasn't the best, but he was the leader. He was the influencer. And he had it in his hands to save his brother, and he didn't. And in the next chapter of Judah's life, what we discover is he goes from being a really interesting person who will straight up sell you into slavery for the rest of your life to just being icky, really Really icky. Say icky with me on the count of three. One, two, three. Icky. Before we, oh, we're going to do that again. One, two, three. Icky. Number two, write this down. Before we get to that, though, write this down. Number two, write this down. Number two. We're going. There we go. Judah is an incredible hypocrite. You know any of them? Judah is an amazing, he's an Olympic level hypocrite. This guy is a gold medal award winning hypocrite. So here's what happened. Judas the shepherd and uh, him and his brother, they shared this town and his time has gone on. It's all these years later. His first son gets married off to a woman named Tamar. Now, and then his first son uh, sins. It doesn't even tell us what he did, but he dies. It's obviously because of his sin and Tamar's widow. Then there's the second son. He commits evil before the Lord. 
he dies. And so what happens is Judah, now Tamar, she's a widow. She's been married to these boys. And what it was is their tradition. It was the law that when if you died, say if you were uh, married to someone and the husband died and the widow was left, but they haven't had any children, she's supposed to be married to one of his relatives. Uh, to one of his brothers so that that family bloodline will keep going. I know that's kind of icky. That's the way it was. And um, that's what they did. So she's supposed to be married to one of her husband's, uh, her deceased husband's brothers. And that's just the, that's how they took care of the widows. And so what happens is Judah tells Tamar, you know, to go home, wait for his youngest son. His youngest son's not quite ready to be married, old enough to be married. Wait for him to grow up a little bit, and then she can marry him just like the law commanded. But in the meantime, Tamar, you need to grieve like a widow, behave like a widow, keep yourself separate, do the right things. That way I can provide for you. I can protect you, right? If, you know, you hold your end of the deal, I'm going to keep my end of the deal. You're under my protection. So she begins this process uh, waiting for this younger guy to grow up so she can marry him. That's her, again, guys, that's her only hope for provision. There's no social security. There's no safety net. There wasn't any churches that would help widows or anything like that. It was simple. When you're a widow, if your husband's family did not take care of you, you are on your own. You could be an outcast from society and open to all kinds of treacherous things. So here she is, Tamar. She waits for a couple of years and consistent with Judah's character Every time, he's not going to keep his promise. He's not going to keep his promise. And she realizes this is obvious, so she takes matters into her own hands. And this is icky. She dresses up and disguises herself as a temple prostitute. She would have been wearing a veil, and she sits by the road waiting for Judah. Judah comes by one day, and he doesn't even recognize her. He thinks she's a prostitute. Now, she had a veil over her face, but I still, honestly, like if, if I saw Alicia with a veil on her face, I think I would know that's Alicia. And that shows how far away from upholding his obligations to Tamar as her son's widow that he didn't even recognize her or know who she was. She, he's not protecting her or keeping any of his promises. Anyway, so Judah, being the classy dude that he is, he decides to hire a prostitute. Thanks, Judah, icky. And they talk. And what they do is they decide that the payment for a prostitute is a goat. I guess that was what they cost back then, right? A goat. But wouldn't you know it, Judah didn't have a goat on him at the moment. You know, don't you hate that when you don't have your goat on you? Some of y'all do yoga with goats, amen? It was on you, over you, I mean. And, and so, but listen, he didn't have his goat, so she wanted something. She wanted something to keep as a promise. Right, that they, they actually was going to pay. So she takes his, uh, his signet ring and his staff, two very important items to a leader, to a man in that culture, right, as down payment. So everything goes down. And later on, he leaves, goes about his business, and um, uh, he sends the goat to get his staff and his signet ring and everything back. He sends a goat. But Tamar, as soon as they were done, she dressed up back like a widow and went home. And so the servant comes with the goat trying to pay the prostitute, and the people in the town is like, there ain't no prostitutes here. We don't have one. And so they couldn't find her. Now, as you can imagine, Judah didn't look real hard. Would you? You know, he's like, hey, I tried to pay. Forget about it. Okay, you know, no harm, no foul. They couldn't find her. Well, three months later, it's reported to Judah that his daughter-in-law is pregnant, Tamar. And the words that's used in Scripture is, she played the harlot. So he finds out that his daughter-in-law, she's not married, 
She's supposed to be waiting for his boy, which is that's way past due, and she's pregnant. She played the harlot. Uh-oh. And then Judah does what every person does when they have a secret and they're pretending to be something they're not. Judah gets real self-righteous. 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 That's what we do. Many times, some of the most, the people that you know that are the most self-righteous, they're hiding and covering up the most sin many times because they're going overboard with that righteousness to make up for how sinful they, they are and they don't want you to know it. Have you not ever met somebody who is so self-righteous, right? Something comes up, somebody, something, somehow, amen, and they just hammer it, hammer it, hammer it. Oh, that's a sin. That's terrible. Oh, she shouldn't have done that. She's played the harlot. She's getting what she deserves. Hammer, hammer, hammer. Then you fast forward a year, five years later, and that, you find out they've been doing the same thing the whole time. That self-righteousness. It doesn't come from a place of holiness. It comes from a place of sin. I mean, somebody just hammers away on certain... I've known certain pastors, man. I don't know if they did it, but they've just like a one-track mind on one issue, one thing, and they just hammer it all the time. And many times it's because there's some kind of sinful guilt in their own life. You do know that's human nature. You do that. And I do that. Anytime you see a parent that's like hypercritical on a child, what it is is our children are mirrors of us. And this has happened in my life where I see my son or my daughter behave in a certain way and I just jump on it with both feet. We're not doing that. And then I realize this is where they got it from. Marcus in 10th grade. You know what I'm saying? And when we see our imperfections in our children, sometimes we don't react the way that we should. We're not seeing their imperfections. We're seeing ours. And when we see other people's sin, it causes us to inflate up with angry self-righteousness because we're guilty. We don't want anybody to know that we're guilty. That's human nature. If you have an issue that nobody knows about, you're probably behaving fairly self-righteous. So do you know what Judah does, by the way? Judah, he's like, my daughter-in-law has embarrassed the family. She's with child. Burn her. <laughs> Let's burn her alive. She has to die. She's got to go, man. You know, that's what we do, by the way. That's what we do whenever uh, a, a believer, uh, another believer, and they, they're in sin, or they stumble in sin, or they're off track, or things aren't going right, or whatever it is, we say burn them many times. I mean, we don't say burn them, but we burn them down with our words, with our eyes, with our attitudes. We burn them down. We burn them down standing in the line in the fellowship hall. We do it in the hallway. We do it in Sunday school. We do it in the sanctuary. We do it in the back. We do it at home. We do it in the office. Burn them down. And somehow we equate a person's value with their sin. As if that's all there is to the person. And that's Judah here. Self-righteous. Right? Judah, I mean, the same Judah who sold his brother into slavery. The same Judah who broke his mom's and dad's heart um, by pretending that his brother was dead. The same Judah that promised to take care of his daughter-in-law, Tamar. And broke his promise to her, forced her into poverty. The same Judah that never met a prostitute, he'd pass up. And what does he want to do with Tamar? Burn her. And they're going to, turn, they're going to burn Tamar at the stake. Of course, Tamar's got something 
that belongs to Judah, doesn't she? I mean, it's hilarious. Look at it. Genesis 38, verse 25, it says this. She sent to her father-in-law, saying, By the man to whom these belong, I am with child. And she said, Please determine who's, he, who's these belong to, the signet and the cord and the staff. And then Judah's like, My bad. Hey, that fire thing, I was kidding. Did y'all really go get some wood? Y'all, this drought? We can't have a fire right now. Look what he says in verse 26. Talking about Tamar. She has been more righteous than I because I did not give her to Shelah, my son. And, and Tamar gives birth to a little boy named uh, Perez. And Perez is in the family tree of Jesus. And Perez is a baby that's inconvenient, born at a bad time, born in a bad way, born in a bad place. And it's that inconvenient baby, that inconvenient baby with an inconvenient timing, with an inconvenient, weird father-in-law, daughter-in-law family tree. It's that baby that Jesus comes through. And I'm thinking, Matthew, you could have left that out. That's icky, man. That's super icky. That's not the kind of thing you brag about in your family tree unless it's the point of the story. Sinners are the point of the story. And the story's not over for Judah because about 20 years after this, he's thinking there's not going to be, I'm never going to see my brother again. There's a famine in the land. This is the part that you'll remember if you've been to Sunday school or church for very long. But I want you to write this down first. Number three, Judah only confessed when there was no way out. That's his life story. He only got clean when there was no option. Here's what happens. There's a famine in the land. Jacob calls all his boys together and says, you've got to go to Egypt to buy grain. Now, you know who's in charge of the grain in Egypt? Joseph. He's the prime minister. He went in as slave. Now he's a prince. It's incredible. Hopefully you've read it or you know about it. But remember, Joseph's been in Egypt for a long time. The last time they saw Joseph, he was a teenager. Now he's a 30-something-year-old man. He's on top of the world. He dresses like an Egyptian. He talks like an Egyptian. He walks like an Egyptian. And so they didn't recognize him, but he recognized them. He knew who they were. And so I'm not going to give you all the details, but he sets them up and all this stuff. And he sends them back to get their youngest brother, Benjamin. So they go back to dad and they're like, hey, dad, um, it's weird. This prime minister guy is really weird. But he says, we got to bring Benjamin back if we're going to get some grain. And then the dad's like, the last time I sent my youngest son somewhere with y'all, he didn't come back. So he held off for a while, but eventually they had to do it. So they go back and they bring Benjamin, Ben-Hamin. And so when they bring Benjamin, now Joseph, they still don't know it's Joseph, he's going to keep Benjamin and send them back. In the middle of this, uh, Judah realizes this is going to kill dad. This is going to kill our father. And he realizes we're reaping what we sowed. God has not forgotten. And so Judah speaks to Joseph, not knowing that it's Joseph. He says this in Genesis 44, verse 16. He says, what shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how shall we clear ourselves? God has found out the iniquity of our servants, of your servants. And again, he doesn't really confess, does he? But Judah comes forward and says, you know what? I can't break my father's heart. We've got to keep me, send Benjamin home. And it was after that that Joseph sends all the servants and everybody out. And then he looks at his brothers and he says, I'm Joseph. I'm your brother. Can you imagine that dramatic moment? The brother that you sold into slavery that you're kind of you're on the fence about killing when you decided to send into slavery. 
It's so dramatic. And Judah has missed every opportunity, every anniversary, every birthday, every year. He's missed every opportunity to come clean and make things right. And now he is face to face, eyeball to eyeball with the very brother whose cries for help he ignored and he sold him into slavery. And Judah has to be thinking, by the way, what if the roles were reversed? What would I do? We know what Judah would do. He doesn't have any character. He's self-centered. That's driven. His self-centeredness drove him his whole life. And there he is face-to-face with the man that literally holds his life in his hands. And Joseph says to his brothers, I forgive you. Not only do I forgive you, I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to take care of mom and them. I'm going to take care of your families. I'm going to take care of the herds. I'm going to take care of everything. I'm going to protect you for generations. Matter of fact, eventually Joseph says this in Genesis 15, verse 20. He says, but as for you, you meant evil. But God meant it for good to save many people alive. Again, Joseph is a picture of a savior. He's a picture of Jesus in the Old Testament. And yet God looks down, he skips over the savior, and he goes to the liar and the thief, and he says, I'm going to bring my son into the world through the liar and the thief, not the perfect savior. And Matthew underscores this little snippet in the genealogy. Why? I mean, what is the big deal about Judah ultimately? Write this down. Judah, man, that's me, and that's you. That's the point of the story. That's the point of the story. Joseph is Jesus. You're Judah. You're Judah. And you think, well, I've never, I've never sold anybody into slavery, and I've never wanted to burn anybody at the stake, but you've burned them down behind their back. You've lied. You've stolen. You've blasphemed. Look at this next, next slide. God's grace is even available to people who have not made themselves available to God. What it means is this, that the love of God was available to Judah even when he was far from God. Far from God. And so it doesn't matter the good things that you've done. It doesn't matter the bad things that you do. None of those make you a candidate for salvation. The only thing that makes you a candidate for salvation is recognizing that you need to be saved. That's it. And God decided to skip Joseph the righteous, and he went with Judah the unrighteous. And it's through Judah that Jesus came. Judah didn't deserve that, did he? He really didn't. Judah kind of stinks, y'all. Isn't that remarkable? But that's the point of Christmas. That to approach God, we don't come with our goodness, our good works, all the good things that I do, and therefore God's pleased with me. That's not how we approach God. And neither did God intend for anybody to go, I don't have anything to offer God. I'm not a good person. I'm not some saint. I'm not perfect like Joseph, so I have to stay away from God. God never intended either one of those things. That's not the picture that God gives us. From the very beginning in the book of Genesis, God gives us a picture of grace and mercy and forgiveness that you don't deserve. Judah didn't deserve to be forgiven. Judah had a lot more coming than to be forgiven. And we don't deserve it either. And self-righteousness has never made a person better. And promising ourselves that I'm going to change and I'm going to clean up, I'm going to do better, has never made you handle your past or make things right with God. God, throughout history, in his word, he's chosen the broken people, the messed up people, the people with the past, the people with the secrets. The people who come to God with empty hands, knowing they have nothing to bring. Those are the people that God uses Jesus said in his word, scripture says clearly that he didn't come for the perfect. He didn't come for the righteous. He came for the unrighteous. The sick need a doctor. 
That it's, we have to recognize that it's all about Jesus and what he's done and what he's doing for us. And that's my story and that's your story. Write this down. God came into this world to extend grace, man, to people who could, never, would, never, have, never deserved it. And that's one of the dangers. If you've been a believer for very long at all, one of the biggest dangers is this. The longer that you're saved is somehow you can get it in your mind that you're good, that you're the good guy, and that somehow um, you did God a favor when he saved you or whatever. We start getting this attitude of what's wrong with them? They should be more like me. And you forget that you were Judah, man. You were Judah. You didn't deserve grace and mercy and love, but that's what you've got. It's not about what I bring to him. It's not what the bad things that I've done. It's what Jesus has done for me. It's always been what Jesus does for me. So let me ask you a question this morning. Look at this next slide. Do you have a secret? Do you have a secret? You know, that thing that you plan to take to the grave with you. That thing that you kind of think if people knew that, then maybe they wouldn't even have anything to do with you anymore. That thing that maybe your husband doesn't know, your wife doesn't know. And somehow this thing, this sin, this secret has called you to lean away from God. The good news is that God has leaned in when he sent us his son. That even when you weren't looking for him, he was looking for you. That God is drawing near to you. And you, don't, you need to not allow your past to keep you from God. That his grace is available. It begins just like it did 3,500 years ago for Judah. Imagine that moment. Here's Judah. Man, that jealous and hypocrite. And he, Judah's just the worst. Self-righteous. And now he's standing in front of the man who has his life in his hands. And Judah is guilty. And he knows he's guilty. And there's no more squirming. There's no way out of it. Joseph is alive. And in that moment, Joseph chose to forgive Judah. That's the same way we stand before God. We have to get to that point where we stand before God guilty. Sinners, I've sinned. And I've got nothing to offer, and I can't squirm out of this anymore. I can't make more excuses. I can't pretend to be self-righteous. And when we come to God like that in his goodness and not ours, that's when he forgives us. But he can't forgive us when we show up in our own goodness thinking that we're somehow doing God a favor. We have to accept what he's done for us and stop thinking that we can do something to merit his love. So this morning, those of you with a past, those of you with a shame, those of you with secrets, those with you things that you plan to take to your grave, the good news is, is none of that matters. None of it. You come to Christ with empty hands, admit that you're a sinner, turn, repent, turn from your sin. You trust him, he'll save you. He'll forgive you and you'll have peace with God. But if you try to wait until you fix what happened 20 years ago, you try to wait till you fix all the things that you've ever done in your life. Every time you've hurt yourself, every time you've hurt somebody else, and you think somehow I'm going to clean up, straighten up, and get it worked out, and then I'll come to God, you never will. You never will. It's always about what Christ did for us, and that's what Judah teaches us. No forgiveness for Judah was deserved, but forgiveness is what he got. We don't deserve forgiveness, but forgiveness is what we can have through Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much 
for your love, your mercy, your grace. We could never, ever deserve it, earn it. Thank you, Father. Listen, every head bowed, every eye closed. Just uh, pray right there in your seat and be respectful of those around you. Those of you, you know that you're saved. You know that you're forgiven. You know you've given your heart. You've given your life to Christ. But is there something in your life that's kind of driven a wedge that even though God has proven his love for you and he has leaned into your life and he has saved you and he has redeemed you, do you find yourself leaning away from God? Is there some sin, some guilty conscience, something that's going on in your life and for some reason you feel, you sense, you know there's that distance between you and God? Maybe there was some kind of sin or a hurt. Maybe there's a strange relationship, a terrible situation. And you don't want there to be distance because you know he loves you and you know what he did for you. You want things to be right. Is that your prayer this morning that, you know, God, I don't want anything to come between me and you. God, I don't want anything to come between me and you. Is that your prayer? Lord, I want to acknowledge that your love for me is based on your grace and not my perfection. Is that your prayer this morning? Slip your hand up all over sanctuary. I want to pray for all of us. God bless you. Father God, we just lay our things down. Lord, we just acknowledge once again that we're saved by your grace and your grace alone. Lord, we repent of any sin, anything, that, any stronghold. Lord, we just lay it down at your feet. Lord, we surrender our relationships. We surrender just everything to you. And we know that we can trust you because you've proven faithful in our lives. God, thank you for your faithfulness. Lord, help us to live a life of grace. Not self-righteousness. Grace. Listen, every head bowed, every, as you keep praying, every eye closed, right there. Just Some of you, God has brought you here for this moment. You know that there's been something in your life that's kept you from approaching God. And maybe you've put it off or you've put it off. You know that you're not saved. Or maybe you realize you never really surrendered your life to Christ. You kind of treated this relationship like a checklist. You know, go to church, check. Write a check, check. Try to be a good person, check. I'm saved. That's not how it works. That's not how it works at all. Look up for just one second. Look at this Bible verse. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9 says this. It says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, through your good works, through your effort, through you being good. No, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. In other words, there's nothing to brag about in this. We're saved by grace. We're saved through faith. It's not our, we do this all the time, but I want to do it. Who in here this morning will be willing to admit that you've told a lie? Raise your hand. Come on, don't be a liar and keep your hand down. We've all lied, right? We've said things and we've lied. Now, the second thing, I would, who would admit that they've ever stolen anything? Raise your hand. Some of you are liars, man. You just admitted that you're lying. Now I'm supposed to believe that you never stole anything? I don't. Right? Your mama's changed. You know, you borrowed something. You never gave it back. And, you know. If we, if we lie, that makes us a, a liar. If we take things that don't belong to us, that makes us a thief. And Jesus in his word says, if we look at a woman with lust, we commit adultery. 
It's not just the physical act, it's the heart, it's the mind. We commit adultery with them. And all of us would have to admit that we've been guilty of that sometime in our life. And then also, blasphemy, using God's name in an unworthy manner. Oh my. In the Bible, that's called blasphemy. God takes his name very seriously. In God's word, we admitted that we're liars, and we've blasphemed, and and, in God's word it says all liars and blasphemers will have their part in the lake of fire. God will judge you. See, the biggest concern for me this morning is is that you can leave here somehow thinking you're better than Judah. You're a sinner just like Judah. Maybe you sin different. But if we were just being honest, just by that standard that we talked about, every one of us in here would have to admit that we're lying thieving, blaspheming, adulterators at heart. Do we really think that we could stand in front of a a Joseph, a perfect, holy, righteous God who holds our life in his hands? And because he's perfect, holy, and righteous, he's going to judge rightly. And he's just going to be like, not guilty based on our works? No, we're lying, thieving, blaspheming, adulterators at heart. We do sin and we do it on purpose. All you can do is surrender. For by grace you have been saved through faith, not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. If you die in your sins, man, you're going to hell. But if you trusted Christ and received that forgiveness, you come to him knowing you don't bring anything to the table. You have nothing to offer. You're lying, thieving, blaspheming, adulterator of heart. What are you going to give a holy God? Nothing. And you receive that forgiveness, you repent of your sin, and you trust Christ, he'll save you, he'll forgive you, he'll redeem your life. And even those things that are in your past, once you give your heart and life to Christ, once you surrender to him, he'll begin working on those things in a way that you never could on your own. Trust Christ. Let's pray one more time. Listen, you're here this morning. You know that you don't deserve it, but you need it. You need forgiveness, and you need peace with God. Listen, every head bowed, every eye closed. That's you right now. You want to pray to receive Jesus Christ. Listen, I won't call you up. I won't drag you forward. You know that. I won't embarrass you. But if you want to pray, I just want to pray with you, man. If you want to pray to receive Jesus Christ this morning, I want you to slip your hand up in your seat. I see you. God bless you. I see you. I see you. Who else? I see you. Anyone else? Listen, right there in your seat, why don't you just pray this prayer? Be humble and do business. Let go of all your self-righteousness and just say, God, I'm a sinner. I sin. Lord, I turn from, I repent. I turn from my sin. Save me, Jesus. Say, Lord, I'm putting my faith in your death, burial, and resurrection. That's it. You, Christ alone. Save me, Jesus. Listen, you pray a prayer like that, he just saved you. You've been redeemed. He's given you his Holy Spirit. I want to encourage you, if you've prayed a prayer like that before, make that decision public. Maybe you know this morning that you need to be baptized. First thing we do as a believer is to follow through in baptism. You need to be baptized. Maybe your baptism is on the wrong side of your salvation. Maybe you got baptized sometime when you were a kid and you recognize later in your life is when you truly got saved. You need to be baptized. Once you come this morning, we'll celebrate with you. Schedule that time. We'll rejoice with you. Maybe God is calling you to be a part of the Grace Baptist family. 
to finally make it official, be a part of the team, to put on the jersey, and to serve right here at Grace. Why don't you come this morning? We'll do that and, and rejoice with you and pray with you. But whatever it is this morning, however God is speaking to you during this invitation, you need to know He loves you and He's trustworthy and He's faithful even when we're not. So why don't you give Him this time, this invitation, and do business with God. Father God, we love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for Judah and his story. God, thank you that you loved us enough to save us when we didn't deserve it. Lord, we surrender this invitation to you. It's in Jesus Christ's name I pray. Amen. Will you stand with us? You come.